At the UN General Assembly in 2018, the UN Secretary General raised the alarm about weakening multilateralism and crumbling international collaboration. He started this address with a warning that, quote, the world is suffering from a bad case of trust deficit disorder. He articulated his concerns about weakening international cooperation as a crisis of trust. Just a month later, he gave his annual message as the Secretary General, and he said that one of the things he was working on was repairing broken trust. So the Secretary General positions trust on one hand as the moral grounds of what is deficient in global collaboration, so what he calls the trust deficit disorder, and on the other hand, as a means of fixing that problem by repairing broken trust. So these statements from the UN position trust is really important in international work. And it's also been a really important mechanism of international development program, programs and projects for the last few decades. And this idea rests on the notion that trust building is the kind of social relations that's required in order for development to be successful. So my talk today looks at the ways that trust is currently being used in development as an ethical principle that can get those social relations right in order for development to work. And I'm looking specifically at the ways that non-governmental organizations, so I'll be using the term NGOs, so non-governmental organizations, you might have be more familiar with the idea of not-for-profits or charities. Um, the ways that NGOs are expected to build, build trusting partnership with the government. So I'm going to look specifically at the ways that trust plays into partnerships between NGOs and the government with looking at the um, example of this work in Ghana in West Africa. So spoiler alert, you get to know the end before we've even gotten started. So in my research, I was really surprised and interested to find the counterintuitive ways that mistrust was actually really important in these NGO government partnerships. So even though um, I observed the NGO leaders and government leaders talking about the importance of trust, I actually saw mistrust be um, quite often in their day-to-day -day interactions. So NGOs are working in these partnerships to try to play what they call a complementary role to government, but they're actually really also concerned with maintaining an independence from government and not being compromised by their partnership. And it is practices of mistrust that enables them to do that independence and maintain that independence. So I conclude, um, you know, in, in a few minutes, I'll be concluding that I'm hoping that by the end of the talk, you'll be able to be open to the idea that mistrust might not always be such a bad thing. And that trust and mistrust might be more entangled than we like to think of them. So that's where we're going. Let me step back and just kind of lay the foundation for what these partnerships actually are in Ghana and in development processes in Ghana. I want to start with this um, quote here, which is the vision for development in Ghana right now. So in 2017, the president of Ghana, Nana Kufuado, put forward this vision for development and he hinged economic prosperity on mutual trust. So he says that He's working towards a country that will be an optimistic, self-confident and prosperous nation in which mutual trust and economic opportunities exist for all. I had the opportunity to ask a senior official in the government of Ghana, so not the president himself, but another sort of senior official about this vision. And he went right into talking about these partnerships between NGOs and government. 
And he said that what had been missing in development efforts so far had been trust and trust between government, not-for-profits, NGOs, and private companies. So the official explained to me that what had been absent in the Millennium Development Goals, which were in place in globally from 20 to 2000 to 2015, was trust because they were the sole responsibility of the government. However, the government was taking a different approach now. So they were working on the current sustainable development goals. You'll like, just bear with me with these kind of development speak terms like sustainable development goals. So SDGs, you might be familiar with this graphic and the kind of colors that um, go with the logo of, logo of the SDGs. So these are the goals that are currently um, guiding development processes globally and against which all countries are evaluated at the UN, the United Nations for their progress. And this actually includes Canada, which is kind of interesting. So Canada and Ghana both have to report to the UN on their progress on these 17 goals. So what this official explained to me was that in implementing the SDGs, they were concerned with making sure that there was trust between the government, NGOs, and private companies, and that they were going to work together on these goals. So he added that previously, we used to call it partnerships, but now we're moving towards real partnerships. So he calls the current approach real partnerships and that trust would be central to these collaborations. So what's kind of interesting and I think I'll come back to towards the conclusion is that this official finished his you know, um, blurb to me on the SDGs and the trusting partnerships in them by saying that although all these three sectors, so government, NGOs and private companies were gonna be working together, the government is the one who would be setting the vision and the plan sort of the umbrella for the, for the whole partnership. So this official's comment help us to understand how, you know, the statement by the UN Secretary General that we're in a trust deficit disorder globally, how that kind of funnels down into national development policies like on building trust. So I have an image here that just helps us to kind of, visual, if you're a visual person like myself, visualize what this idea of this three-part partnership is actually supposed to look like. So we have, it's called a multi-stakeholder partnership and we have government working with civil society and private sector. And I'll get to that box in blue in a second. So my own research is based on 15 months of ethnographic field work, which encompasses participant observation and in-depth interviews. And I worked with NGOs in Ghana and they were national NGOs, which means they were run by Ghanaians. Um, who were trying to implement the SDGs and who were working with the government closely in a network of NGOs. So I looked at how this group of NGOs were trying to build this multi-stakeholder partnership with the government. And so just to give you another visual, that red circle shows it was the government and civil society that's kind of the focus of what I'm going to share today. So under the SDGs, national governments are required to show that they've implemented the goals through this multi-stakeholder partnership. In fact, SDG progress indicators actually measure the progress of countries on these 17 goals if, um, by these indicators, and one of them requires them to have this partnership between different stakeholders. So that's the box on the, in blue there, if you want to read along with me. This is indicator 17.16, and just to give you a kind of 
um, idea of this, there's about two, there's over 200 indicators in these SDGs. So this is one of 200 indicators, but it is important. So they say that the SDGs have to be implemented in a way that quote, that will quote, enhance the global partnership for sustainable development complemented by multi-stakeholder partnerships that mobilize and share knowledge, expertise, technology, and financial resources to support the achievement of the sustainable development goals in all countries, in particular developing countries, end quote. So just to reiterate, indicators like this one are used to evaluate the success of countries' implementation efforts. To put it simply, if a country doesn't have a multi-stakeholder partnership, they will fail in UN reports um, at achieving this specific indicator. That potential failure, although you know, for those in the room might seem kind of insignificant, it is really significant for countries like Ghana, where there's a lot of recognition that comes from being seen as successfully implementing these goals. So Ghana is often called a development darling because of its uptake of these goals. And a lot of donor focus and a lot of donor projects come to countries that are seen to be really aligned with these um, you know, development agendas. In fact, what's kind of interesting, Ghana is often celebrated as the first country in Africa to achieve the first millennium development goal, which was the precursors to these ones, which was of cutting poverty in half. So the point being, Ghana has taken up this multi-stakeholder partnership with energy. They, every single event, committee, um, report on the SDGs in Ghana includes representation or at least you know, some words of, um, what do they call it? Words of solidarity from private sector, government and civil society. So this really is quite um, important to the structure of how development is operating in Ghana right now. It's also important in other sectors as well. We see this structure taking place in things like oversight over extractive industries, anti-corruption efforts, um, and not only in Ghana, but in other countries around the world. I wanna just note um, before I kind of get into my own research and my own findings, what the role of civil society is in that circle. So when we see that circle of three, what is the role of that light green civil society box? What are oval, I guess, what are they supposed to be doing? Well, civil society are supposed to be more trusted than by the public, than private sector and government. We're supposed to be able to trust more in what they tell us and what actions they're doing. So what they're perceived to be doing is actually able to hold private sector and government accountable to um, the process. So in this case, the SDGs. They're seen to be independent from those other two circles. So we don't have one big circle. We have three circles who are independent and civil society is supposed to be separate from the other two and watching them and able to hold them accountable. The role is often actually called a watchdog if that you know, term rings a bell for anyone. So this is kind of really key to the rest of the talk that I'll be giving today, that civil society is supposed to be independent from those other two circles. And they're trusted because of that independence. independence sorry. And therefore their presence, we trust the process because they are there and because they're watching their watchdogs over the other two, um, two groups. So what's really interesting here is that trust becomes a moral justification for the importance of these kinds of multi-stakeholder partnerships. It becomes the thing that kind of holds the whole partnership together. Okay, I'm gonna stop the um, sharing my screen so you can just see the video. And um, I'm gonna move away from the development speak. So if anyone had fallen asleep with all the kind of bureaucratic 
terms that I was just using, you can wake back up now because it'll be the fun research part. Um, and I'm gonna be talking about the everyday implementation of these partnerships. What was it actually like to have a partnership between governments and NGOs? What actually took place in the day-to-day -day work that they did? Were they actually independent? These are the kinds of questions I was gonna, I'm gonna ask. So officially, NGO leaders and government leaders often called this partnership a win-win. It was good for government and it was good for NGOs. But what I found was that the actual implementation of it was required a lot of really careful maneuvering and negotiation, particularly on the part of the NGOs that were participating in it. And the main site of that maneuvering had to do with how to maintain an independence from the government and from private companies. So how did they partner while still being independent? Could they work with government and still hold them accountable? Most of the NGOs I worked with believed that they could. They could do both. They could be partners and they could be watchdogs. But it didn't sit so easily with many of the NGOs I worked with. And let me give you just a quick um, analogy that one of the NGOs, NGO leaders gave that I think illustrates this balance quite well. So at a meeting among NGOs, one of the NGO leaders was talking about his skepticism of this um, partnership. And he said, and I'm going to quote from him here, civil society has a role that is different from government. We are giving a policing eye on policy. Our views are sharp in terms of what government is doing. There are two things. You are either in the boat or you are out of the boat and shouting, end quote. So at first he kind of presents the role of NGOs as either or. They're in the boat and collaborating with government, working with government, helping them out, or they're out of the boat and shouting at government from outside of the boat. So he kind of says, you can't be both. You can't be shouting at government and holding them accountable while still being in the boat and collaborating with However, a few minutes later into the meeting, he kind of stepped back from this position and, and he thought, and he, he said, well, actually, maybe it's possible to do both. Maybe you can actually be in the boat, but still sometimes disagree with the government. So you can see from this analogy of the boat, it's kind of useful. Are they in the boat? Are they outside the boat? Can they be in the boat and still be and still be holding the government accountable? So the NGO staff that I worked with often called this balancing act that they were trying to do as playing a complementary role to government. And when I say complementary, if you can kind of visualize the word in your mind, it's with an E, not with an I, which is a very important dis distinction. And a kind of funny aside to this, there was a typo that went out in an email among these NGOs who are working with the government. Someone sent an email out saying proudly that they were complementing government and they accidentally put an I, complementing government instead of complementing government. And it created a bit of a hoopla in the moment and it had to be retracted because that was exactly not the point that they were trying to make. These are the kinds of like, you know, little nuances that matter quite a bit. So in contrast to complementing governments in, in their collaboration, they did worry about this idea of being compromised in their collaboration. So a compromised position is where they would lose their independence. So just to be clear, complementing was a good moral position for NGOs that were working on the SDGs with the government. However, being compromised would threaten that position and their ability to hold government accountable. So the question and the real issue for these NGOs became, what is the line that defines being compromised on one side and complemented on the other? It's actually really not that clear for the NGOs I worked with. And I would probably guess for many NGOs around the world in collaborating with the government, what's that line of where you're compromised? 
it was it was often debated among the NGOs. And a quick example of this negotiation is around finances and whether or not to accept funding from the government. So for instance, in 2019, the UN held its annual forum on the SDGs um, in New York. So this happens every year and countries come to go to New York. I'm in Toronto, I'm not in New York, go, go to New York and they report on progress towards those you know, indicators and goals that I mentioned earlier. And so in 2019, the government of Ghana went to present its progress report to the UN. And it invited civil society representatives to go as part of the official delegation. So 15 NGO representatives from Ghana went as part of this official delegation of the government. The status as official delegates at this UN forum was actually not very controversial. And this is actually perhaps kind of surprising because of the NGO's desire to remain um, independent from government, that wasn't that controversial. What was controversial was whether they should ask for help from the government to pay for their flights and hotels in New York. It was a point of debate among the representatives for some time. There was back and forth on WhatsApp and, in, and during meetings, should they ask the government for funding or not? In the end, the decision among the group was not to ask for funding from the government and to find donors to cover the costs instead. As one civil society representative said in a meeting, the government giving them delegate status was good, but quote, sponsorship would have compromised our position, end quote. In other words, they refused to ask for funding because they wanted to stay independent from the government. What's kind of interesting about this is I heard after the fact, I didn't go to New York, I was in Accra during the forum, but I heard afterwards from some of the delegates that there was another group of delegates from another country in the global south who saw their close collaboration with the government and were kind of suspicious about it and asked them several times, have you been bought, have you been bought? Um, thinking that you know, the government had paid them to come and talk about their partnership. And later on, when I heard the retelling of these, these questions, the civil society representatives I spoke with were very proud to be able to say that no, they had not accepted any government funding to go to New York. Um, what's kind of interesting, there's two points I wanna to note to this as an aside, and maybe during the q and if folks have questions about it, we can come back to it, is that it's really common practice in Canada for NGOs to take funding from the government. Um, most NGOs are actually reliant on different government agencies for their funding. Um, so this isn't sort of a widespread practice of not taking government funding, but in Ghana, uh, that is quite common. Also kind of interesting to note is that the NGOs received funding to go to New York from bilateral donor agencies who are affiliated with other countries' governments. So they weren't, they were funded by the government, just not the Ghanaian government. Kind of interesting. Okay, so that was finances. Another point of potential compromise and negotiation was food and eating at government events. It is this issue of commensality or eating together that I'm gonna unpack in detail and kind of focus on for the rest of my talk today. Let me just, it's over lunchtime. So I hope all these stories about eating I'm gonna go into everyone else is eating while I'm talking. I really hope so. It is called ethics at noon, so. Okay, so the issue of eating was epitomized for me when I heard an NGO leader make a confession to his colleagues. So this confession happened in a boardroom in Accra, Ghana, that's the capital city of Ghana, with leaders 
who had been to this forum in New York. So they were back from New York and they were attending a meeting among NGOs and kind of giving an update on what had happened in New York and, and you know, what they'd learned and what they hoped to take away from that forum. So during this update, the director of a prominent national NGO that I called John, John his real name, um, stopped the group in the middle of the update. And he said in all seriousness, in a commanding voice, that in the name of transparency, he had to tell them something that had happened in New York. During the two week forum, the government of Ghana had held a side event, um, which is kind of common practice. And John was invited to attend this side event. And side event is I think a UN speak for something that's not part of the official agenda, but kind of happens to the side of the official agenda. Anyways, um, so John explained to the other NGO representatives around the boardroom table, in Accra that he had felt that he had to go to this side event in New York because the government was their partner and had included them in this important delegation. It had been a long day at the UN and John was hungry. Now for the confession. He said to the group that as he talked to government officials and special guests at the event, he had eaten, he had ate some hors d'oeuvres. Now, I was surprised by John's need to stop the meeting and the update on the trip to New York to make this confession about eating hors d'oeuvres. Your initial reaction might be like mine. So what if he ate something? Why does it matter? Why was he eating and not just attending the event or talking to government officials that was the issue? Now, part of my surprise came from um, the fact that John was a strong advocate for the partnership with government. Months before this confession, John had explained to me that partnership was, quote, a cardinal underpinning of the SDGs. He said that in order for the government of Ghana to achieve praiseworthy implementation of the SDGs, and again, just a reminder, praise is from, um, you know, donors and UN agencies, in order to achieve that praise, they needed to have a multi-stakeholder partnership because, quote, you cannot claim to be implementing the SDGs without partnership, end quote. John had also told me that this partnership was addressing historical mistrust. He said that the success of the partnership depended on NGO leaders and government leaders understanding that there was historical suspicion between the two sectors and they, they needed to really work to build trust together. In fact, at this New York you know, forum, there was a lot of press releases that went out back in Ghana about the events that took place. And in these press releases, John is quoted several times as praising the partnership between the government and the NGOs. And he actually is quoted also in saying that it was reducing mistrust between these two sectors. So if John is so happy about this partnership and describes it as building trust, how can we understand his confession about eating and this is what I'm gonna unpack for the next little bit. So after his confession, John went on to explain the importance of eating to the other NGO staff around the boardroom table. He said that he was worried pictures could have been taken of him eating. Presumably, presumably it was the circulation of these hypothetical pictures in Ghana that was of particular concern to him. He argued to his colleagues around the boardroom table in Accra that eating at government events was, quote, an ethical thing to consider. When we go to such events, do we want to go to the extent of eating from government, end quote. 
I, I think this statement bears repeating. So I'm gonna just read that quote again. Um, so he said that eating is an ethical thing to consider. When we go to events, do we want, or go to such events, do we want to go to the extent of eating from government? He then you know, finished off by recommending to the other NGOs around the boardroom that at future events, they all refrain from eating. So despite my surprise at John's need to come clean, I came to realize that this confession about eating was illustrative of these negotiations that I've been talking about around NGOs trying to balance comp being complementary and avoiding being compromised in their partnership. I found it helpful to think about this moment of a confession in thinking about how trust and mistrust are entangled, where publicly, publicly NGOs need to show that they're building trust with the government but they also need to show distance and from government in order to ensure their independence. So not eating is actually a sign of a practice of mistrust. And so practices of mistrust like not eating become a way for the NGOs to show a distancing from the government. So the main issue at stake, I believe here in this confession and the recommendation to not eat at future events was not John's attendance at the side event was not his official delegate status and was not even the partnership with government. But the idea that eating with government or eating from government in John's words would be viewed by a public audience in Ghana as compromising the NGO's role as a watchdog. So his recommendation that they not eat in the future demonstrates to a watchful public, those who would have seen some of these potential pictures that could have circulated back in Ghana, that they're independent. In other words, he was suggesting to that his colleagues show a healthy degree of mistrust, even though they were also showing trust in this collaboration. In order to understand this statement of eating, I wanna unpack for a few minutes the social meanings of commensality for eating together in Ghana. So John describes the practice of eating and commensality as an ethical thing. Anthropologists have pointed to the social life of food and the ways that distributions of food need to be understood within broader systems of meaning and power and politics. I, one of the ways I find it helpful to think about this social practice of eating and the social ties that eating um, binds us with is through the anthropological framing of the gift, as eating food at a government event is to accept a good gift of food from the government. So there's a classic anthropological work by, by Marcel Mauss called The Gift. Some of you may be familiar with it. And basically it shows that gifts are not disinterested or voluntary, but come with an obligation to reciprocate the gifts. So when you give a gift, you are obliged to return the gift and this exchange denotes a relationship. So I can just, as in a quick aside here, think about this in terms of Valentine's Day, which is this weekend in case anyone forgot. Um, and Think about you know, the type of gift you're thinking about getting your significant other. The type and the quality of the gift you give has meaning for the type and quality of the relationship that you have. And there are consequences if one person gives a gift and the other person does not reciprocate. Have I stressed everyone out about what you're giving your significant other this weekend? I hope that was not the point, but maybe something you can put on your to-do list for, for later. Anyways, the takeaway is that gifts are a recognition and a representation of a relationship through that reciprocity. Receiving a gift of food can denote a relationship. By suggesting that other NGOs 
refuse the gift of food and avoid moments of commensality with government. I think that John is pointing to the potential um, perceptions of expected reciprocity in that relationship. So even if the gift of food is freely given and it doesn't come with a cost, you didn't pay for the food, it was freely given, it might show an obligation to give back and then might um, compromise their perceived independence. In other words, if other people you know, in these pictures saw that there was an, an exchange and a reci reciprocity, they might think that that reciprocity compromises the accountability role of NGOs. Now, I think it's kind of worth noting and quite important to note that John's explanation about pictures being taken of him adds a bit of nuance to this. So the concern with pictures shows that John's worry is not so much about the actual reciprocity in eating the food, but about Ghanaian public perceptions of that reciprocity is what I would suggest. Okay, let me nuance this even further by digging into more into some of the social meanings of eating in Ghana. So remember um, when we started, I talked about how trust is a very important way of describing these multi-stakeholder partnerships that are being that are taking place. Now, in a prominent Ghanaian language, which is mostly spoken in the southern part of the country, Chi or Akan, the word for trust is jedie, which literally translates to English as to receive and to eat. So J meaning is means to receive, and D means to eat. So to trust then is to accept something and to take it in, to ingest it. So to receive and eat food from the government literally translates as to trust. And eating together indexes then a trusting social tie. So a Guinean public might perceive eating at a government event as an indication of a relationship between the NGO and the government. Now let, I'm gonna go even further. So in Ghana, eating is also highly saturated with meanings in terms of questions of corruption. A common way of referring to corruption in Ghana is through a pidgin word, and pidgin is another local language. The pidgin word is to chop. So in pidgin, to chop means to eat. A local eating place is called a chop bar. However, the word to chop is also, also has a second meaning, and that second meaning is corruption. So chopping is a widespread way of describing or referencing corruption in Ghana, and it's referencing a form of kind of consumption that's embedded in social relationships, which is um, Jennifer Hasty has a book on that, if you're interested. So in other words, references to eating and the consumption of food is a metaphorical and colloquial way of indexing corruption in Ghana. So you might be interested, you know, for my, uh, for folks re watching, you might be interested in say, that's interesting, Miriam, but it sounds like some fancy linguistic wordplay. Um, I'm not necessarily sold. Well, let me just share that I think the translation of trust in tree as eating and eating as corruption helps us understand some of the symbolic importance that eating has in Ghana. So John's preoccupation with eating can be understood as concern about perceptions of corruption and not corruption in terms of taking a bribe, because let's not forget there was nothing illegal in accepting food that was freely offered at an event. I think we can all think of, you know, those little hors d'oeuvres that we've eaten at different events. It's not a corrupt act to eat at those events. But he's worried about this consumption and the resulting corruption or loss of his independence 
and the accountability role that his NGO plays. There's, um, in a recent special issue of Current Anthropology, there was a great um, piece on corruption by Sarah Muir and Akhil Gupta, and they talk about corruption as contamination or as transgression. And I find that framing useful. So thinking about eating and corruption, not as breaking a law, but as a contamination of a moral position. So eating could contaminate the perception and the reputation of the NGOs as independent. So let me summarize this point on eating that I've made. So John calls eating an ethical thing to consider. It's ethical in terms of pointing to the complex moral positioning that NGOs need to take in their relationship to the government. On one hand, John is building a collaboration with the government and chopping or eating can be a sign and a demonstration of a morally good conviviality and trust building between the NGOs and the government. This kind of conviviality and, and, and relationship aligns with what the UN has been calling for when they say there should be more trust in these multi-stakeholder collaborations. John was invited to an event and to maintain that relationship, he attends the event and he eats food. However, on the other side of it, his confession to the other staff back, other NGO staff back in Accra points to the broader implications of this action. His confession indicates that chopping in the sense of eating and in the sense of receiving from government may be perceived as chopping in the sense of being corrupted. His suggestion not to chop is to refuse to eat or refuse to receive and eat, that is to say, to refuse to demonstrate to a public, uh, public trust through the reciprocal obligation of the gift of food. So I interpret John's recommendation that NGOs should not eat at government events as a practice of mistrust that demonstrates a public distancing from the government. So this understanding of corruption and compromise as a form of transgression or contamination of the moral positioning I think is really helpful because it helps us move this reading of the relationship between Ghana or government, sorry, and NGOs and this confession by John away from a question of does the government and NGO really trust each other? Like you might be asking yourself that right now, do they really trust each other or not? And I think what I'm trying to point to is the fact that that question of whether trust is really there or whether mistrust is really there is somewhat besides the point. Instead, I'm pointing to what trust talk and practices of trust do. They do things within the relationship. Trust Talk publicly aligns the NGO and the government with international expectations that they're building multi-stakeholder partnerships. On the other hand, social practices of mistrust align with Ghanaian conceptualizations of corruption and maintain the credibility of the NGO. Interestingly, and what I'm going to turn to next um, before I, I conclude for, for today, is that the NGO's ability to successfully hold these two positions simultaneously is critical to the government of Ghana's position within international development processes. So you might remember a few minutes ago, I mentioned that Ghana is considered kind of a development darling within international development circles. It's considered kind of a model or a pupil of development in, in these are words I'm pulling from um, kind of development policies and reports. And, it's, and this is partly why the multi-stakeholder structure was so important, is so important in Ghana, 
because they want to be able to report to the UN that they've been successful in achieving the goals that are set out by the UN. So this partnership be became part of the cornerstone of that forum in New York and the, the, Ghana um, the Ghanaian government's presentation on their progress at that forum in New York, if you remember, in 2019. So during that forum, one of the NGO delegates shared a video back with their colleagues and myself as the, the, their anthropologist partner um, back in Ghana. And this video was circulated among NGO leaders in Ghana during the forum itself. And it's a video of an official within the government of Ghana speaking about their partnership with NGOs. And I think his speech is really interesting. So I'm gonna quote from it at some length. So I hope that you'll bear with me um, as I just sort of quote part of that video. So the official says, and he is speaking at a UN forum. So you can kind of picture yourself in a UN room um, listening to, to this official. And he says, I must say that as a country, I think we are blessed to have an active and well-organized civil society that is strong and committed to the implementation of the global goals. To ensure that the solid partnership that government has with civil society in Ghana doesn't compromise the neutrality or indeed their independence. The government is committed to ensuring that the law, country's laws, its policies and its practices protect the fundamentals of civic space. We see the partnership with civil society as an absolute necessity in our collective quest to bring prosperity and indeed a life of dignity to millions of our citizens in the country." End quote. Interestingly, this video was captioned. So on WhatsApp, you can add a caption when you send videos and pictures. And the NGO representative who sent it back to um, their colleagues in Ghana captioned it as, with the name of the government representative, continues to speak about civil society's report as part of the civil society's partnership with government, which does not compromise our neutrality." End quote. So both the government official and the NGO representative who shared the video underline that this partnership does not compromise their independence or neutrality, and that the government is actually helping to protect the independence of civil society. And this reiterates the message I've been sharing. However, it also kind of adds another layer to it because the official speech, his, his statement points to how the government is playing a strong role in um, ensuring a strong and protected civil society space. And what this does is it helps to reinforce among these international audiences, the image of Ghana as an open, free and democratic and stable country in Africa. Because if you're, um, you know, liberal, ideas of democracy require there to be a strong civil society and civic space. So in other words, an independent civil society, the one that has separation from government and is not compromised by government, positively reflects on the government as well and aligns with the country's, um, shows the country's alignment with global liberal development values. Kind of interesting. I wanna comment on the three audiences I think that these various messages are being sent to. And who are kind of who who are they pointing you know these messages to at any given point? Because I think this helps us to understand this entanglement of trust and mistrust. So first audience, the government official here is speaking to UN officials and international development donor agencies. For this international audience, the government needs to show that it has taken up this multi-stakeholder partnership structure in the implementation of the SDGs. The structure is described as building trust. 
So that's what donors want to see. That's what the UN wants to see. That's what they'll put in UN reports. The other side of the coin, which is kind of interesting, is that a strong and independent civil society is also needed for the country to be continued to, to continue its reputation of being a stable democracy. So the first audience is this international one, and they want to see both a strong multi-stakeholder partnership and an independent civil society space that reflects an open democracy. The second audience I think that's important to consider is the NGOs among themselves in Ghana. So as I mentioned, a lot of these questions about how are, what is the line that defines being compromised are happening among NGOs. There's a lot of debate among the NGO leaders themselves about what it means to be compromised. The official who shared the video, remember, they shared them back with their colleagues in Ghana and underlined that the partnership was not compromising their neutrality. So these debates are happening around finances, around eating and different factors that help them to try to parse out what it means to be compromised and what it means to be independent. The third audience is the public back in Ghana. So how they perceive the relationship between government and NGOs. So the presence of NGOs as watchdogs helps to build public trust in processes like the SDGs. And John's recommendation to not eat at government events is pointed towards this Ghanaian public and demonstrating that the NGOs are still a little bit skeptical and mistrustful of the government and they're distanced from the government because of that mistrust, maintaining their credibility. So NGO leaders need to be thinking about their ethical positioning in relation to all three of these audiences, donors, other NGOs, and the Ghanaian public. And the implication is that for NGOs to be labeled as successful in working on the SDGs, they practice what might seem like an impossible ethical negotiation by working closely with the government and showing that they're still mistrustful and have not been compromised. So in conclusion, what, I'm, what I've tried to show here today is that by ethnographically studying everyday practices of partnerships, we're, we can kind of go beyond these public discourses that happen in UN reports and speeches around partnerships that are building trust and that they're overcoming this trust. So if we think about trust as this common sense ethical position in relationships, what I'm trying to put forward is the counterintuitive ways that mistrust has also been useful in these collaborations. The everyday enactment of partnerships um, requires trust work to also be bound up with practices of mistrust. So it's productive to rethink trust and mistrust as entangled discourses that are invoked to do particular kinds of work for particular kinds of audiences rather than as kind of these abstract binary opposite things. So I'm trying to open us up to consideration, um, considering, sorry, the ethics of mistrust and how it can be actually critical for the success of partnerships. So let me just finish by going back to the official's statement on the government's role in protecting civil society space. So, the ability of NGOs to show mistrust and trust simultaneously matters to the government, as I think I pointed out. A successful partnership structure helps to affirm the primacy of the national government over the SDGs in the country. The government is positioned as the head of this partnership structure and overseeing the contributions of private companies, which I haven't talked about today very much, and NGOs. And this is the role that has been long held by international donors in Ghana, rather than 
by the national government because donors are often top down, you know, framing international policies and priorities and giving the funding to governments to then implement those. So there's a bit of a shift happening with these um, partnership structures and the ways that they're positioned in Ghana right now, which is reaffirmed because the president recently announced that Ghana is moving towards what is called a Ghana Beyond Aid. Although this agenda remains vague, Ghana Beyond Aid seems to be reinforcing national sovereignty over development goals and affirming that development is the responsibility of the national government, not donors or lenders. Bringing national NGOs into the mandate of this partnership structure with government as the head reinforces the nationally led development agenda, even if it also draws on you know, international SDG frameworks to do so. My broader research has talked about the ways that these partnership structures are also kind of a mechanism to render technical, to use Tanya Lee's term, the political and antagonistic relationship between NGOs and government in development processes. So by bringing civil society under the umbrella of those responsible for the SDGs in a partnership with the government, the NGOs positioning and their watchdog role can potentially be managed in new ways. What I have found though, and what I've tried to share today is that these mechanisms of governance are kind of incomplete. Partnerships are not wholly subsuming NGOs into a new moral position. Instead, NGO leaders are actively negotiating their role and maintaining a distanced position to take advantage of opportunities of participation while avoiding being compromised. The ways that NGO leaders navigate this delicate position can sometimes be as mundane as the decision to eat or not to eat an order. Thank you. <laughs>